This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome back to Almost Heretical. We're still talking about this relationship between God and humans and where atonement and blood sacrifice and Jesus and all of that fits into this. And uh, yeah, we've gotten a ton of questions in on this one. And so Tim, let's let's jump into some of these questions today. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's play the first question. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Brandy from Auburn, Alabama. I've been listening to your podcast for some time and I love what you guys are doing. In listening to your current series concerning blood, the Levitical system and atonement, and the idea that blood is not shed for forgiveness of sin, I'm wondering how you handle Hebrews 9.22, which states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Would that just mean that forgiveness can occur only after cleansing, which is accomplished by blood? Any insight would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Brandy. I, I love this because I think this is kind of the, the practice we almost need to have as almost heretics out here because these are the kind of things, verses are kind of brought to us and say, well, yeah, what about, what about, and I know Brandy's not doing it in that way. She legitimately wants to know, but I mean, I think thinking through these things, because I mentioned, I think an episode or two ago that this is great and I'm, I'm so excited to be rethinking and, and reimagining what atonement looks like. And, and think, I think we're getting back to a little bit more of the roots of what the biblical writers believed when they were writing the Old Testament. Um, but it does seem like it's, a, it's way more complicated. And the, those that sort of hold this traditional view of atonement that I think you and I kind of used to hold – they have a lot of easier verses on their side, like this one, like this Hebrews verse where it's, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. It just face value, simple reading. It's like, yeah, what are you going to do with that one? That seems pretty obvious. Yeah, totally. So so first, I just need to uh, apologize. Something I said uh, two episodes ago just wasn't clear. I was trying as best I could to, to be clear when I said it because I knew it'd be sort of a, a provocative uh, statement. <clears throat> and... Uh, and I failed. So what I was hoping to say and what I believe is that the New Testament does not explicitly state essentially the, the penal substitutionary view of what Jesus' death does. It doesn't state that Jesus' blood paid a price in place of humans' punishment. Like It doesn't say that Jesus took the punishment from God that was due to humanity, and it doesn't connect blood to um, a, a, a penal substitution, right? So as I said, the point of sacrificing animals was not a penal substitution. It was doing all sorts of other things. Right. And the New Testament is, is likewise not viewing Jesus as an offering as a penal substitution. But I don't mean to say that, that the New Testament doesn't connect Jesus's death with forgiveness, that's actually all over the place, and and I'm not contesting that. So it's something I've 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 sort of known this. Um, I don't know. It's like a minefield, right? Or it's just so complicated. It's hard to parse one thing from the other. But because of that, I've I've repeated something throughout. I think our couple of years of doing a podcast, which is that I'm not fighting uh, forgiveness, right? I'm not hmm. um, anti-forgiveness or trying to erase the idea of forgiveness from uh, from the Bible or the New Testament. Uh, but we've interpreted anything that has to do with forgiveness through a penal substitutionary lens. And that, I'm saying, is not only toxic, but I just don't think it's in the text. I don't think that lens is where 
we're coming from. So what I've tried to start articulating, and we'll dive into a little more here, is that what forgiveness even means is a bit more complicated, and I think we need to talk about that. Yeah, because I remember like some of the early stuff we did, we were kind of pushing back on this idea of uh, cheap forgiveness, at least, or the sense of you can remain sort of how you are. Um, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. You sort of that bumper sticker. We were pushing back a, a little bit against that, so maybe it could have felt like we're saying forgiveness is part of it. We don't need to be forgiven of anything. But yeah, I'd love to talk more about this. Yeah, so I actually mentioned this verse offhandedly uh, at the beginning of the series, Nate. Um, and you probably don't recall it. Listeners may not recall. But you remember I, I pointed out <laughs> this line, Hebrews 9.22, uh, which a lot of English translations say, without blood, there is no forgiveness. But do you remember me pointing out how else you can translate that word forgiveness? No, I don't. It's release. It's 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 liberation. So in Luke 4, this is the um, the example I brought up to, to clarify earlier, and, and we'll get into it in a little more detail here. Luke 4, Jesus goes to the temple. He picks up the Isaiah scroll. He reads from a couple different places. And one of the things he says in this sort of jubilee announcement is that he has come to proclaim release to the what some uh, translations have as prisoners, uh, but it's the same word as captives. So remember that whole framework we just looked at in the last episode where the idea is a foreign hostile empire has come and overthrown uh, the the good guys, the nation of Israel, this is the, the basic picture, and taken kidnapped people and taken them as slaves, captives, back to their homeland. Right. And the picture is of God or the king and the army going out to, to wage war, and if they're victorious, they get to bring their fellow people who were kidnapped back home. And that's been connected to this this idea of binding the strong man, right? To be able to to rescue those who were enslaved to the strong man. That idea that that's captured in that word captive, that's the same word here, right? And so Jesus is saying he's releasing or he's coming to proclaim release to these captives. Now, if we're reading that in line with the Psalms and other places, especially in the New Testament, which are talking about Jesus enacting a liberation for enslaved people from their captivity, then like we, we should know intrinsically that what those captives need is not forgiveness the way that we think of it. It is certainly not just forgiveness, okay? But it's the same word. The same word that is translated as release in Luke 4, as release for the captives, is the same word that is translated as forgiveness in Hebrews 9.22. In other words, the word forgiveness, the, 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 the Greek that we use the English word forgiveness for, is a word that has the broader meaning of release. And so I, th I think, like this is, we talked about how atonement as sort of a chemical cleansing holiness uh, change thing is overlapped and intricately connected to to ransom and redemption and liberation. Well, here what we're seeing is even linguistically, they're inseparable. The word forgiveness is the word liberation. Like they are they are the same thing. And so what, one of the things that I think this means a few things. One is when we read something like Hebrews 9.22, 
without blood there is no release slash forgiveness. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean forgiveness. I'm not saying that, but I think it it should point us to that maybe it doesn't mean forgiveness in the sense that we usually use that word, at least the way that I've experienced myself and others using that word. And this gets back to the, I think, one of the biggest questions when we're talking about atonement, what did Jesus do, all that, which is, is this changing God's attitude towards people or is it changing people and their actual state? And so just with atonement, Kippur, I've tried to say that it just, the word just doesn't mean what we think it means, right? So I repeatedly find scholars who, for instance, will read Jacob Milgram and, and agree and say, okay, atonement has to do with, with cleansing. But then every time they see atonement, they're like, okay, who's guilty and who needs to be forgiven? Like they're just, they're defaulting to that's what, that's what it means. So even when they learn the new idea, it's like the reset goes back to this guilt forgiveness paradigm. And I think we've so in, inherited this idea that forgiveness is about the, the person who was wronged in this, in this framework, it's God changing their mind about how they feel towards the person that did the wrong. Right. So it's, it's an attitude shift. It's a change of mind. And I think the fact that the, the word for forgiveness is a word that means that release should be cluing us into the fact that, that even linguistically embedded in here and then beyond just this little word quirk, the bigger picture uh, set of ideas is that what we're talking about has to do with an actual existential change in the person being forgiven or released. In other words, it's like if forgiveness is liberation from sin, not just God changing God's mind about God's feelings towards you, then the, the focus is on, on you changing, right? Your real situation changing, uh, not on, on you staying in the exact same scenario, right? The bumper sticker of basically I haven't changed anything in my life but now God thinks of me differently, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. It's essentially what I think that's saying. I, I don't think that's that's the picture here. Um, so remember we said like that the whole atonement thing is largely, this is my, my case, largely not about forgiveness. It's largely about covering over all impurity, defilement, including the defilement of sin, but what we'll get into is the detail of only unintentional accidental sin in order that God can come close again. And that that is all overlapping with this big picture theme of liberation from, from foreign powers. So what we're seeing is one of the things we didn't get into the details of that the binding the strong man and ransom theory and liberation, one of the things that, that the New Testament writers at various places think Jesus liberated from was sin itself. And, and this is where you get the idea of like Paul saying we're slaves to sin and the idea that sin is, is not just like the, the bad things that we do, but is actually a hostile power itself, right? Like sin, in, it seems, at places in the, in the writer's mind, in Paul's mind and, and other places, sin is the strong man at times. And sin is the thing that people need to be liberated from. Tim, what is sin? 
<laughs> that, that is like, I'm going to pass the buck on that one too. Cause okay, I'm going to read a few verses, but we'll see is there are even multiple words that in some modern translations all get translated as sin and others, sometimes one will be translated as trespass and another will be translated as sin, but there are different words. And if you just think about, we've mentioned this before, both Hebrew and Greek were incredibly small languages uh, compared, especially compared to uh, English in terms of the number of words. So what we've seen all the time is like one word will be used to mean 18 different things, right? Because they just didn't have that many words. Right. So anytime you find a situation where multiple words are being translated into the same English word, I think something is not as, as well as it should be. Um, so we'll get into that whole question. It's still an open question in, in my mind too, and I'm I'm still uh, trying to wrestle through with it. So to to clarify, again, forgiveness is there. It's more complicated than than we think it is, and it's intrinsically connected to liberation and redemption. So I also got an email from another <laughs> listener who said the same thing, kind of like, "Wait, are you really trying to say that Jesus' death had nothing to do with forgiveness?" And uh, sent some verses my way. And um, so interestingly, a couple of them are good examples of just how much when you sort of look at the, the textual clues that what forgiveness is being linked to is, is not penal substitution. That's my argument. It's never linked to penal substitution, but it's actually being linked to things like redemption. So for instance, Ephesians 1, 7 says in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. So now we just read that and I'm, I'm assuming you're like me where it's like redemption, that's just sort of this vague salvation word, right? Like it's just a good thing that happens and it's all about forgiveness of sins. But redemption is the same word as ransom, which we just said is, is basically it's a liberation, a rescue from, uh, from captivity, a rescue from prison or enslavement. So in Jesus, we have ransom through his blood and then again, the word forgiveness is is also release, the release of sins. So you can just see there that like this isn't playing into a, a substitutionary or even especially not a, a penal substitutionary motif. It's playing into that strongman motif, the rescue from a from a foreign occupation thing. Is that is that making any sense? I think so. Yeah, my natural reaction was to like you know, Google forgiveness and how many times it shows up in, let's say, the New Testament, Paul and and others. Um, and there and there do seem to be like these verses that are just kind of like, well, then what about you know, what about like this, like Colossians three thirteen, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So that's like that's saying like, how did God forgive us? God had a grievance against us and forgave us anyway. That's sort of like you know the plain reading of of those two sentences. I don't know. Oh, well, sure. But like, I think that's just plain sense. Like why I, you know, I don't need to argue about that. Like, of course God would forgive all sorts of things just like we do right of each other all the time. But we, we don't need to read into that. And God wouldn't have forgiven you if Jesus didn't die. You know, it's back to that question. Like, did Jesus have to die? You know, could God not have forgiven until Jesus died? Well, it's like the entire Hebrew Bible is about God be, being continuously merciful and gracious and forgiving Israel. Forgiving them for what? And I guess this comes back to my what is sin question. Yeah, for, for all sorts of things. And we can get into, you know, 
a more detailed conversation on like what the writers are doing when they use the word sin. But like, no, I, I'm not trying to contest that like there was never a need for forgiveness in human, (laughs) human existence or that, you know, God doesn't need to forgive people. Like everybody needs to forgive each other. We couldn't make it through an hour. Right. Like that's just, that's just life. But there's no need to extrapolate that out to like the extremes of total depravity or original sin or penal substitution, which is like God won't forgive you unless somebody dies for it. Like the part of the problem, in my view, with with those frameworks is that it actually makes God unforgiving. It's the whole God's justice is so high, right, that the, you know, even the, even the slightest little sin is such a grievance to God that it is perfectly loving and just that God would perfectly punish uh, even even the slightest little sins. It's like what that actually means is that God is a crappy parent, right? That God isn't capable within God's self of <laughs> of finding the the capacity for forgiveness, which we would all look at each other and go like that would make you a a less than fully adult, fully mature human being if you don't have the the capacity to forgive somebody. And anytime Nate, you hurt my feelings, like you need to go kill something, right? Just to like appease appease my wrath. So right. we'll get into this more. For, for now, let's just basically say like, I think the idea that God would change God's attitude, would relent, would go easy on, on people to be merciful, like that's there. I'm not saying that's not there. But when we look at forgiveness and what the New Testament is saying, Jesus especially accomplished there's much more than that going on. And I do not believe that the New Testament writers think that God needed Jesus, or of course we'd say that that means God needed God to do something for God to be able to forgive people. I don't think that's the case. Um, and and the, the language itself, the fact that the word being used to communicate what is happening here is a word that means liberation, I think should force us to at least have a bigger picture, um, a bigger picture view of of the whole conversation, and realize it's it's more complicated, um, it's more complex uh, than than we may think. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs)
So another passage connecting Jesus to blood to forgiveness that was sent my way is, again, another one where you can just see this is all more complicated uh, than it seems. It's Revelation 1.5, and the English translation is, Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. So even just in that translation, you can see that what's happening is it's not just that God has changed God's mind about us and our behavior, we have actually changed. We've been liberated. We have moved from one state to another state. Uh, and interestingly, uh, the word translated freed here is uh, unloosed or untied, literally. And so, so think about that. Like there's this, this driving metaphoric imagery of tying up a, a hostile power to take people away, right, to rescue people. And and then there's this line that, that Jesus has untied us from our sins by his blood. It's, it's quite obviously playing into the same uh, metaphorical framework of liberation. I said this a few episodes ago, but it really feels like a jailbreak. Yeah. You know, where you tie up the guard and break into the jail and untie all the people that are in there. I really I picture the Disney Robin Hood scene where they tie up the the wolf or whatever and then they break in and and get all the the people out um, by untying them untying their their shackles and their chains and everything and letting them out. So like the reason I thought of that is because it's the tying up of the the strong big wolf character, the guard, and then breaking in and the untying of all those that were captive. It really feels like a perfect yeah picture. It absolutely is that and. We got to understand that prison was was a a construct of war. This isn't like modern incarceration practices where where nations were imprisoning their own citizens uh, and essentially not allowed to imprison foreign citizens. Right? This was uh, war prisoners, war captives, uh, kidnapped people, and so again, the same passages, Genesis three. <laughs> Adam and Eve, the snake, all the thing that's been used in, in Protestant circles to say, look, the whole thing is about falling short in the sense of like not being good enough morally or making mistakes, failing. Yeah, not measuring up. I heard that so many times. I probably said it too. It's the not measuring up. Yep. That's what sin is. And then every the God can't be with people who are imperfect after that. What we've actually looked at is at least one of the many things that passage is about is a war broke out. And that war is the <laughs> is the dominant background to everything that happens going forward. And here what we find is a whole bunch of passages where what's being framed is Jesus is liberating people from the thing that a, that a war had done to them, which was made them slaves. So you can also see, we won't get into the details, you can see then when, when the same Christians, the New Testament writers, start reading back to Genesis 3 and calling the serpent Satan and then connecting Satan to this strong man, this power that is ruling the world, what are they doing? They're, they're saying essentially that what happened at the beginning was a kind of enslavement, an imperial overtaking, which enslaved people to a power. 
So again, that's just far bigger and more densely loaded with a bunch of different metaphorical schemes than what we typically think of as like propitiation, right? Appeasing, appeasing God. Uh, that doesn't mean God's never angry. That doesn't mean forgiveness isn't a big deal. It doesn't mean there aren't times where God does just change God's mind and and choose to deal mercifully with humans. Um, but I don't think that's what the main piece that, that the New Testament authors are getting at. Uh, let's play one more listener question, sort of barking up the same tree. Hey, Nate and Tim, this is Emily. I have greatly enjoyed your recent podcasts on atonement. It put quite a few more pieces of the puzzle together for me. One of the only pieces I have left is God's wrath. Inevitably, anytime I see a discussion that isn't pro-penal substitutionary atonement, the argument gets brought up that God's wrath had to be satisfied because of how horrible our sin is. So, is God angry at us for our sin, or is God angry at the injustice towards the marginalized as a result of our sin? Maybe that's just semantics? How would you deal with that? Thanks. Thanks for the question, Emily. Nate, I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think, Tim, you wrote a piece on our blog which we don't really publicize our blog that much on almostheretical.com, but about anger um, and kind of about a righteous and uh, a just anger that we should have towards the injustices that we see in the world. And the um, especially when it's like religious people using religious texts um, to enact some of those injustices, which we've seen throughout history. And so I really resonated with that second one of like, is it God being... <laughs> so frustrated at the injustices is that what the wrath that god is feeling is that where that comes from i'm not sure but i know that would be totally justified and i tend to think that's more of what is going on when you hear those wrath passages is this clearing out the injustice from the land clearing out the subjugation of people from the land and the um, all of that you know the wrath and anger that someone would feel of the powerful doing that to the to the weak and the rich doing that to the poor like that's that's how i've sort of interpreted that yeah so again just to to clarify like forgiveness is there in the text and and god being angry is there in the text and in some places in the text you do have god being angry and acting violently towards people because of it in some places you have individuals trying to uh, assuade god's wrath to to use that language especially in, in parts of the hebrew bible uh, my my point, both here in terms of forgiveness and atonement and blood, but also even in the early conversations we had on just reframing what the fear of God is, is like, is that the main thing? Is that what the New Testament writers are picking up on? Is that the um, primary uh, way that we're supposed to be looking at this? And for instance, in the, the fear of God thing, you have several passages where clearly the thing people are supposed to be afraid of is God's judgment. And that runs through both Old and New Testaments. So it is a sense of like, you know, evil people should stop being evil because if not, they will be held accountable. And, and that is lumped in with the fear of God. The question is like, is that the whole picture? Is that even the start starting point, right? Is that the, the driving force or the originating power behind this idea of, of fearing God? Or is it actually this bigger you know, more ancient concept of, of the incompatibility of God and humans. And in the same way, like God being angry is in these texts, but many of us have been trained to see that like that, again, I call this the Martin Luther uh, like version of Christianity, that that's the story, 
right? The story is God, God is angry. The story is an angry God exists. Humans are on the wrong side of that angry God. And something has to be done to appease that angry God. And that is what we refer to as grace by faith, not works. Like that that framework has been indelibly like driven into so many of our minds that anytime we see one little thing that's like God is angry, that whole story then repopulates, right? So part of what I'm trying to do is like, I'm not trying to erase or ignore passages or evidence against, you know, my interpretation or whatever. Um, and I know sometimes it could, can feel that way, but sometimes I actually think what we need to do is ignore things for a moment to try to get ourselves to, to think in a new story, to like try to piece together a new narrative or a couple new narratives, and then go back to those same texts with that new narrative and see if there are other ways to reread it. Um, but as long as, you know, kind of like the Nate, the objection you keep bringing up, sort of the devil's advocate objection of like, yeah, but what about Romans 5 or whatever? It's like, as long as that's what we're doing is to try to protect the narrative that we've held, then our just brains are always going to be able to to find a way to protect that, especially when we're reading, reading Bible translations that were created out of that same narrative framework, <laughs> right? Um, so I know sometimes it feels like I'm like just deconstructing everything and like doing away with with so much but i think that's just what it feels like when we exchange big picture broad narratives like our meta narrative about what everything means and replace it with a with a new one right okay so tim so someone comes up to you and you're talking and they're like yeah like the the christian thing the god thing i just never could do it because i couldn't get over that wrath of god piece that there's this angry god that has this wrath in god's heart for human people or certain human people or all human people or i just could never do that i guess what do you say to that person yeah i i you know the empathetic part is like i i'm with you like i don't <laughs> so much of the God is mad and violent and we have to escape God thing. And somehow God did this thing where God helps us escape from God. Like that's not good news. And that is a, a wearisome, exhausting, and often has been historically anxiety producing form of religion. And at the same time, I'm, I don't like apologetics and I'm, I'm not wanting to do apologetics, but the, the, the other side of me that goes in the sort of apologetic direction is like, I do think, uh, I, you know, just like I don't think penal substitution is there in the texts, I don't, and, and, and I think that's good news for those that care about the texts. I don't think an apathetic God is there anywhere in the text. And I think that's also good news for people that are at all interested in the Bible. Well, that sounds a little bit like, and I've heard this argument before, well, would God be a good judge? If imagine a judge in a courtroom, you know, if God was just letting people off, you know, that wouldn't be right. Right. You know, would you think that judge is a good judge? You know what I mean? Like that argument. Yeah, totally. And a lot of those same people are the people that love and have propped up the American mass incarceration system because they actually think that mass punishment is success. And so there are a lot of us going like <laughs> in real life, that is an utter failure. It's an utter travesty and an injustice that we imprison more of our population than any other nation in the world. And that's also a travesty when we think of God and humanity in that way, right? And that punishment is 
is not indicative of a good judge, just mass punishment, <laughs> mass imprisonment, mass retribution. That's not indicative of, of a good judge or parent or whatever other metaphorical framework you want to use. But but the, the, the half-truth that is embedded in the, in the Calvinistic scheme is that anger is a part of love, right? Like any God that cares about anybody, even if God cares just about two people, on planet Earth, and not all of them, which is the Jewish and Christian consistent articulation, then God is going to be angry a lot, right? Because people do bad things to other people. And so basic empathy calls for anger. That's why, like you said in that that blog post I wrote, like so much of status quo protecting uh, religion and politics uh, chastises anger because anger is the thing that says that things aren't what they should be. That is like our natural radar, right? Our, our psychological radar that things are wrong. And so if people want to keep things the way they are, then, then they demonize anger. But basically every, every person that's ever wanted to, to live a fully human life and see positive change in the world is angry a lot of the time because, because the world is, is very wrong. Right? So, uh, I think that this is just part of the the basic necessity of any religious scheme is that any view of God, if that God is going to be caring in any way, that caring will will mean anger, just as it does for us as humans. So I, I think it's a basic necessity. Uh, to have a view in which the the God you believe in is a God that, cares enough when bad things happen to, to get angry about them. But I also think at the same time, this is why, this is why I'm not a, a good apologist, that that is one of the most dangerous aspects of religion. Because then what we are doing, is, or we have the potential of doing, is co-opting a powerful, angry force that we can use against the people that we think God should be angry at, right? So, so the truth is, my God is very angry that Donald Trump is president of the United States. That's what I believe. But how many people in the, in the United States think that their God like single-handedly elected Donald Trump and is angry at all of us like socialist lefties for like, you know, trying to take power back from from capitalism, right? Right. So I I I've, I've got to be honest that what I'm saying is, you know, uh, and this is just intrinsic I think to Emily's question that like is there an angry God? Well, I think a God that has the capacity to, to be angered, I'm saying that's a, that's just a basic building block of a, of a, of an honest religious scheme in which a person believes in a God. Okay. Like a, a, a personal God that has feelings. <laughs> right. And, but at the same time, I gotta be honest that like, that is why we're at war with each other. Yeah. Right. We all think that our God is angry at the other person. Like we all, we all believe that. So some of us have tried to like be committed then to nonviolence and all that. So that if we're wrong, at least we're not killing each other while we're wrong. Um, but it is part of just the, I don't know, it's the dilemma that I, that I find myself in. Yeah. So I certainly wouldn't want to go, you know, to use your hypothetical to the atheist and convince them that what they're supposed to do is then like join my team on my, ang with my angry God, you know, like on my angry God team, because yeah. It just seems like I'm doing more of the same. Yeah. 
Okay, well, we could probably keep talking about this for a long time. All right, let's move on um, to Mark's question. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Mark Shaw from Culver City, California. I have a question for you. My Christian tradition is all about the necessity of discipleship. If a Christian is just another word for disciple, according to Acts 11.26, then the question is, what is a disciple? So if I then go to the Gospels to see what Jesus says about the topic, I encounter barriers of entry, such as, you cannot be my disciple unless you do these things. For example, Luke 9.23, Luke 9.57-62, through 62, Luke 11.23, Luke 13.24, Luke 14.25-33, through 33, and obviously many more. Following this spiritual logic leads to the conclusion that there are really only a rare few who are able to live that level of commitment and can thus call themselves a disciple or a Christian. I'm very clear on the fact that we're saved by grace, not works. But when I hear more universal theology, which I find very appealing, I am at a loss on how to not ignore or neglect the numerous commitment passages and discipleship passages. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. I honestly, the word disciple and disciple discipleship is, uh, I, I don't use this word lightly because I think it's way overused, but it's a little triggering just because that, um, in the, the church world that I was a part of, and that I was planting churches in starting churches and pastoring in, that was the word. I mean, yeah. And all the, the Luke passages there, the Acts passages, I mean, that was, those were our, our marching orders that was what we we centered everything on and and i think mark hit on something interesting there which is that there's this barrier to entry there's this uh extra level of like things you need to do things you need to deny yourself um in order to be a part of this group and call yourself a disciple of Jesus. And so what that looked like for me in that world was like trying to do the, the craziest things, you know, for, for Jesus that I could, I could think of and denying myself the craziest things and um, just trying to be this like disciple. And then we had this whole system where you were trying to make other people like that too. So you would go out and try to find others and, and then you would quote unquote disciple them, which meant, you know, going through some book or going through the Bible together and trying to get them to be just as sold out crazy radical for Jesus and so that they would go and do that to someone else and that's what discipleship was anyways I don't even know what part of that is good bad whatever I'm just saying that's why it's a little a little bit triggering for me is that I was pretty wrapped up in that for a while and I it it made me become someone I wasn't naturally a lot of things um and so there was this period after that of kind of shifting back to becoming more authentic and more real and genuine to who I actually am it's probably has nothing to do with what (laughs) Mark really wants to know, but uh, that's just what, as he was talking, I was like nodding my head like, oh, this this is bringing back so much. Yeah, totally. I'm with you. I was in the same world. Um, but let's, let's talk about, let's talk about universal atonement. And we're going to talk about how that can be reconciled or actually shine light on these sort of conditional requirement uh, passages. And, and I, I hope we're going to land this plane being able to say something very strong about Universal atonement. Um, okay, so Hebrews 9, we're already there. We touched on verse 22. Uh, as homework, if you want, I, I think this is just a great way to learn Bible, is you you do some homework, you listen to a podcast like ours, you read books, whatever, you find a new paradigm, and then go, go read the same text again with a new paradigm and see if you see new things. So one little short great case study would be Hebrews chapter 9. 
in there, you see all, a bunch of the stuff we've been talking about, that Jesus carried sin away, that humans have been liberated, redeemed from sin, uh, the disposal of sin through, through death. Blood is a cleanser in Hebrews 9. But then you also have this really interesting piece uh, that is actually a whole theme in the New Testament that we're going to explore. Verse 7, talking about the high priest and sort of con- comparing Jesus to the original high priest in the tabernacle. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Remember, remember what that was all about, Nate? Yeah, I always remember like what that meant to me was that you were supposed to pray for things you didn't even know you did, right? Like pray for forgiveness for if there's any other way, you know, that I messed up or something. Oh boy. You know, praying for those too. Um, which then it kind of gets into that fear thing, you know, because you're like, I'm just so afraid of this God. I better confess anything that, you know, it was mostly, I think, centered around communion because, you know, we would always remind you in that world that like, if you were taking communion with even unconfessed sin, that you were heaping judgment upon yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, a lot came out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, we're going to talk about communion sin. Um, okay, but it's, that is, uh, so here in this one passage, uh, the author of Hebrews is drawing attention to a specific fact that I have draw, tried to draw attention to in uh, this series of conversations, which is Yom Kippur and the whole blood covering holiness, sanctification, cleansing system was expressly only intended to be able to to cover for accidents that people made, unintentional sins, things they did in ignorance. There's about a dozen verses in Leviticus, Numbers, even in Ezekiel that are drawing attention to that fact. It's important to the writers to to express what it is blood could do and what blood couldn't do, okay? And what we said is the way that other sin was to be dealt with was it was to be disposed of, right? And that's what the the scapegoat did sort of nonviolently. But if you were caught in the act of murder, you were to be sent out, exiled, and essentially murdered. That was uh, the disposal process. And so then recall, we talked about uh, the, th- the three different animals that were all sacrificed in a way that Jesus is repeatedly likened to in the New Testament. You remember what the three were? Uh, a scapegoat. Can you get like a ding after each one? I'll give you a ding. Ding. Uh, well, there was the, um, the blood sacrifice one. What was that one called? The one that's actually killed, right? Yeah, it doesn't have a... I mean, there are multiple time, there are multiple kinds of offerings. But yeah, in Yom Kippur, you have two animals. One's a scapegoat, one's killed. Yep, so I'll give you that one. Ding, number two. What was the big third one? Another thing that Jesus is compared to? Another animal that Jesus is compared to? Yeah. And I said this was actually the most predominant, more than any other. It's why the Gospels align Jesus' death with the Passover and actually... The synoptic gospels line up Jesus's death with the day before the Passover when the Passover lamb was actually butchered, slaughtered and butchered and prepared for the Passover feast. Yes. So the, the Pascal or the <laughs> Passover lamb. There you go. Two and, two and a half points. I'll give okay. you. Okay. So mm-hmm. the, those three. Okay. And we talked about uh, the, the Passover lamb accomplishes liberation, has nothing to do with forgiveness. The scapegoat removes and destroys sin, okay? 
has nothing to do with covering or blood. And the, the killed goat, or the second lamb on Yom Kippur, is the one that covers things over and deals with accidental sins by by blood in a way that can cleanse and make things holy. Okay, so you have disposal, liberation, and consecration and cleansing, okay, in these three different animals. So what's really fascinating is that that middle one, the one that the blood is doing the cleansing and the consecrating, that the one of the two animals on Yom Kippur, again, that is expressly said is it only does that for accidental, unintentional sins. So it's interesting. So it's not just in Hebrews 9. Um, actually, even in uh, Hebrews 5, first few verses of Hebrews 5, again, talking about the high priest and, and what it's doing is comparing Jesus and what Jesus did to the things that the high priest and the tabernacle system did. So every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Okay, here's just another point. All he's doing is saying like, he's in the process of saying, hey, Jesus is like the high priest. But specifically goes out of, I'm assuming the author's male, we don't know that. The author specifically goes out of his or her way to to point out that this is, this is about ig- ignorant things that are done right? This is covering things that are, are ignorant or covering sins that were done in ignorance. Um, and this actually is a theme throughout the entire New Testament in, in discussions about what Jesus did. Paul even frames his own sort of murderous approach to the, to the early Jesus disciples before Paul was himself mercifully brought into that Jesus community, he frames that whole thing as simply acting in ignorance. And, and actually, the, the book of Acts says the same thing about Paul. Uh, so 1 Timothy 1.13 says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In Acts 26.9, uh, there's a quote of Paul saying, I too is convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And basically goes on to saying, he was acting in good faith, but on bad information. And so see, there's this, there's this theme. The reason Paul is framing him, himself that way, his own actions that way, we're going to see is related to why the author of Hebrews is picking up on this idea and it's actually why, in my view, one of my all-time favorite verses uh, and most sort of powerful, poignant verses, um, why it's actually there. <laughs> and, and it's the line, it's only in, in one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke. But it's why Jesus is quoted as saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Have you ever thought, much about that verse, Nate? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know how deep I got on it outside of kind of the theology I had at the time. I've tried to rethink about that verse, you know, because in the past it just meant like they didn't know they were killing the son of God, right? And they're going to see one day, right, that that's what they were doing. But I feel like there's so much more there. Yeah, totally. And, and I think one of the things that is 
that is there is that Luke and and I think at least several others of the New Testament writers, what they're doing is subtly but very intentionally suggesting that every character in this story, even the worst villains, meaning Paul, who's early on the the prototypical bad guy in the story before he joins the church, right? He's the one that most everybody is the most afraid of. He's killing all of Jesus's friends and followers. And the very executioners of Jesus himself, the people who are literally putting him to death, what it's doing is framing those atrocities, unjust murder, essentially, execution, as the kind of unintentional accidents that were capable of being cleansed by blood. And that leads me to a, to a big, big question, which is why would the authors do that? Why would they feel the need to do that? So you're saying this is kind of completing the Yom Kippur uh, unintentional trespasses, unintentional sins by Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They, they don't know what they do, that he's aligning this to Yom Kippur. More specifically, I'm saying it's already aligned with, with Yom Kippur. Okay, the Jesus has been thoroughly woven into the entire Levitical system, Passover, the Yom Kippur events, all of that. He's already woven into that. Okay, and then these authors are saying, well, okay, one important principle of that whole system was that it was only unintentional evil that was actually able to be cleansed by blood. Okay, that's a fact of the system. Now, what that means is if that same principle is still operative while we're then framing Jesus according to those principles, then that leads us to a problem. And the problem is many characters in this story would not have been cleansed by Jesus's blood. Now, let's think again about why that is a problem. I know that's actually just what many Christians believe. In, in a limited atonement. But why is that a problem? Remember, once again, why could God not just show up with humanity? Like, why was there not just like, oh, there's been a separation. Okay, let's schedule a meeting next Tuesday, eight o'clock. Let's all get together. Because they were defiled in some way. And that defilement couldn't be, chemically couldn't be around God. Right. And so... For God to show up at a meeting like that, to be present with people, if the entire world hadn't been cleansed, would have been a catastrophe. In other words, at Pentecost, when when God all of a sudden becomes massively present in the world again, if the world hadn't been cleansed by Jesus' blood, according to what the authors believe, that would have been like an atomic bomb going off. That have, would have been the opposite of good news. The whole logic underlying all of this is that atonement only works if it's universal. Because defilement spreads. So if Jesus or if the tabernacle system cleansed 98% of the world, well, that 2% would just defile the rest of the world and then the contact between holiness and and, and God's presence, especially, and the defiled world 
would be explosive. The, what we're going to get into in, in upcoming conversations is this whole thing, atonement, was a means to accomplishing God showing up in the form of the Spirit. But the point, the point the authors are saying is that if, if atonement, because atonement is cleansing and, and consecration, if it isn't universal, it isn't a thing. It doesn't work. Hmm. So what, what we're seeing actually in these clues is saying that like literally no character in the story, it's a very creative literary way of saying this, but they're saying no character in the story is outside of the bounds of Jesus's act of cleansing and sanctification. Even the people who are killing him are also accidentally bringing about their own cleansing. It's a way of, of narratively, creatively asserting that, that Jesus's atonement is a universal atonement, which Paul just straight up says in multiple passages. We've just sort of tried to do away with them because other passages have led us to believe that atonement isn't universal. And so this gets back to Mark's question. Part of that, I would say, is that we've misunderstood what atonement is. And part of that is we haven't, because we misunderstood it, we haven't been able to reconcile it with with, question, with passages that seem very much like the narrow road, right? All these conditions have to be fulfilled to follow Jesus and only a few will be able to do it. Atonement is not that. <laughs> atonement, and I actually think this is the case, like if atonement isn't universal, I, I really think this is like the, the um, presupposition that Luke and others are trying to bring to the, to the surface. They think that we all assume the basic fact that if atonement isn't universal, atonement doesn't work. And that because we're all operating from that assumption, they are giving us clues to justify that Jesus's death did accomplish a worldwide universal atonement. Uh, And the clues being that they're framing all of the things that are going wrong as accidental sins, the very kinds of things that could be cleansed. Uh, what I, I think it's not too far to say, according to the author's minds, if if the Jesus story didn't accomplish a, a universal worldwide no person is left out atonement, like there is no church. Uh, Pentecost couldn't have happened. God's spirit couldn't have been with anyone effectively, let alone a whole bunch of people uh, traveling about in the world. And that's the whole point. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not, but that feels very like a com- like a completion of some of the stuff we've been talking about here. Like if you can't have, if these two things can't be together, not because they don't want to be together, but because of you know the chemicals and the science that's going on, ancient science, you can't have these two things together. You know, the visitors can't just go running into the nuclear reactor without something catastrophic happening. And yet we read later on that these two things are together and the nuclear reactor has come to be in the city. It's actually just like around it's, it's in the city and everyone's around it. Then the logical assumption is that something has taken place universally with all those people, you know, we'd have to go to the, well, then they all have hazmat suits on, right. Or, you know, something has happened. There's some sort of a, a change that has taken place to everyone. Um, and so it, it, that seems very like complete and very final in what we've uh, this journey that we've kind of been on in a finally, I guess, getting to this place where it's like you uh, just, just when you said that, like we, we couldn't have the church. We couldn't have Pentecost. We couldn't have the spirit coming to the spirit of God. Right. So 
you know, God, we couldn't have God coming to dwell amongst us. We couldn't have that if there wasn't this universal atonement. Now there's questions there. Like, what does that mean? I think in the kind of in the traditional way of looking at that, you're saying like the questions are, you know, okay, so then you're saying everyone's going to heaven. Um, and so what do we do with that? You know, we can, we can get to that eventually, but yeah, this is, it doesn't feel kind of like the culmination of what we've been working on these last 10, 12 episodes or whatever. I, I think it's a huge culminating takeaway. It's one of the, I think it's one of the bigger light bulbs that has gone off for me in this whole deep dive into Leviticus and atonement and all that. I, I think a, a way of summarizing it is the logic underlying the entire, I don't think this is an overstatement, the entire Levitical system the entire story of the Hebrew Bible and the entire gospel of Jesus is that it's all or nothing. Chemically, logistically, scientifically, I think the basic underlying idea is it's all or nothing. And that is why God didn't just show up earlier. That is why, you know, the question of, (laughs) the, the same questions we've always asked of like, why did it have to wait till Jesus, all that sort of thing. The point was it it couldn't nothing could change until the entire world had been made clean again, uh, and that is what Acts, the book of Acts, sets out to to show us. And so let me uh, to sort of tie it back into Mark's question. Let's just look at uh, take a few last minutes to look at one even <laughs> even more detailed piece of this that I think is just fascinating. Help us underscore the point and appreciate uh, the Bible even more. So uh, we got an email from. Uh, Another person named James making a really interesting uh, connection observation uh, with uh, the Eucharist, communion, bread and wine, and to the idea that holiness spreads and all that. And he said, on some level, does the Eucharist work in the same way as the holy dough falling into the the common dough, making the whole batch holy? Uh, In other words, like when we eat the, the bread, which some way connected to Jesus' body and the wine connected to blood, is that our way of essentially allowing Jesus's holiness to like take us over? I think it's a fascinating idea. I don't know. Y'all can email in with your thoughts on it. But here, here's something really, really fascinating. Uh, the idea that the Levitical system only cleanses accidental sins is all over. But one interesting fact is that there aren't very many examples given of of the kinds of accidents that could be be covered. So the whole city of refuge thing, you remember that? There's like these towns where people could run away to not be killed. Right. So that whole thing was one example, which was if you essentially accidentally killed somebody, so you did manslaughter, it was an accident, You there's a, a whole protocol set aside where you could go leave uh, to another city to avoid essentially suffering a revenge killing. Right, uh, because specifically because you aren't a murderer, you accidentally killed somebody, and there's a there's a strong line being drawn between those two things. Um, so that's one example. And then one other example. I think I've mentioned this in an early episode. It was Leviticus twenty two fourteen, eating a holy offering by mistake. <laughs> okay, now now track with me here for a second. So there's a whole lot of talk about. Jesus's body being food yeah. and Jesus's blood being drink. So much talk that that is the main way that we still, 2,000 years later, continue to remember 
Jesus and proclaim and participate in the death of Jesus is by eating these things that represent him. In fact, in all the conditional statements, as Mark was pointing out, that say, say, you have to do this or you're not one of my followers. One of the strongest is in John 6. It's, it's the crazy passage that makes a lot of people like completely squeamish and, and feel strange about the Bible. It's very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. And so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. (laughs) Okay, so just track with me here for a second. Eating Jesus' body is one of the things that is the conditional, unless you do this, you will not be woven into Jesus. You will not be in Christ, which is the thing that allows your sin to be carried away and then your life to be raised up with heaven, right? Where Jesus goes, you go, that, that kind of thing. Right. Unless you eat his body and drink his blood, you can't do that. And then we're, we're supposed to recall that one of the, the listed examples of things that you shouldn't do, but if you did them, you could still be cleansed by blood at the the tabernacle, was if you accidentally ate something holy, a holy substance, if you accidentally ate it. And then (laughs) some of the gospels are connecting those who kill Jesus with those who who are killing his body. And and eating Jesus's body is connected to killing him. In other words, this seems like a subtle sort of puzzle that is, again, reinforcing the idea that, okay, if you don't eat Jesus's body, you're not going to be a part of this thing. But then at the same time, those who kill Jesus, who are most trying to do away with this holy offering, this is kind of like the white witch thing again, where the the white witch is, is trying to get rid of, you know, Aslan but ends up actually liberating all of the people. So by taking communion or Eucharist, whatever you call it, by taking that bread and, and, and wine, we are connected to those who literally killed Jesus. They were connected to the lamb on Yom Kippur, which was for those who didn't know what they were doing, the sin that they were committing. Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. We are connected into that. So then everyone is saved by being connected to those who killed without knowing what they were doing. Yeah. And I think maybe another way of putting it is that in the stories that we're reading, the people in the story who are the bad guys, who we would likely look at and say, these are the ones who couldn't possibly fit the conditions to be included in in the Jesus thing and to be covered, to be made clean and holy by Jesus's death. The people who are physically actually killing him, that it's a subtle way of saying, actually, even when they're doing that, their act of killing him is, is essentially eating his body and drinking his blood, which is the very thing that, that brings you into participation into Jesus and it's the very thing that accomplished this universal atonement. It, again, it's the white witch thing where the thing someone did to eliminate 
the holy presence in the world is actually the thing that secures holiness for the whole world and and liberates everybody. And so it's a way, at least in part of this, we'll, we can get into in detail later. There, I think there's a difference between Jesus's calls to shape your life in a way modeled after his, for example, nonviolent uh, politics, what that discipleship piece, and the inclusion of every single human being, past and present and future, into the the cleansing and consecrating work that, that Jesus accomplished, such that we can say every single person has the possibility to go boldly into the throne room of God, which is the same thing as saying every single person has the the opportunity to to physically have God come live in them. That is what the whole story is from this point forward. And what this is doing is underscoring it's everyone. It's Jew, it's Gentile, it's it's Greek, it's it's slave, it's free, it's everyone. And the, the reason it's everyone is not just to not leave anyone out. It's because if anyone is left out, it doesn't work for anybody, right? It's right. it's the logic under underscoring the whole story. Hmm. I just think the fact that, that that whole idea is woven even into communion so that for those of us who, who take communion or the Eucharist, who, who eat bread or a cracker and drink wine or grape juice to participate in Jesus's death, that even woven into that entire act and, and web of symbols is this remembrance that this happened for everyone, that this was universal in its scope and scale. Uh, I think that's a, f- a fascinating and important little bit uh, of, of Bible. Yeah, that's beautiful. And this does in some ways feel very complete because we've been teasing and saying for a long time, this is going to get back to Jesus. This is going to get back to Jesus. And we've gotten there a few times and uh, today in this episode, it feels like it kind of fully clicked of like what this changes and what we're able to say because of some of this new stuff we've been learning here with Leviticus and atonement and what happened um, on the day Jesus died and, and that type of stuff. So yeah, that was, uh, it was wonderful. All right. Thanks for spending time with us today, friends. You can find out more about this show. You can support this show and get a whole second podcast called Utterly Heretical, which we're about to record another episode for in just a few minutes. You can get that all at almostheretical.com. And you all have been doing an amazing job sending in questions. You can keep them coming. You can do that all on the website as well. All right. We will catch you next time. Peace. Peace.